Well, hello, everybody. So good to see you all here this morning. I'm excited to open God's Word in just a minute. Before we do so, I want to take a moment to thank all the ladies who were here yesterday for food, faith, and fitness. Wasn't that an amazing event, ladies? I was here for part of it, just kind of sneaking around in the back, and uh, it looked like an amazing event, and so much work went into it. I asked uh, one of the attendants, or attendees uh, this morning uh, how she was feeling this morning. She said, sore. And what that means is, they, one, I think one session was like a workout session, so they uh, worked out, and she was sore. And so I said, you know, that's a good sign, right? When your muscles get worked out and you're sore. And so I just heard it was an amazing, amazing day. Can we thank all those who spent so much time organizing yesterday's event? All right, I've got some great news for our church family. We are growing. We have an addition to our church family. Maybe you know that Alexis Callahan uh, was pregnant. She's no longer pregnant now because she gave birth this past weekend. In fact, we got word this morning that she gave birth at 3.30 in the morning today to beautiful Aria Callahan. Aria is doing wonderfully. Mom is resting, and so we're so thankful. Uh, many of you may know that uh, Aria's dad, Tim, is our junior high director, and we're so thankful for the Callahan family. Would you pray for Aria, especially for Alexis, as she recovers in the days ahead? And speaking of prayer, our leaders want to pray for you. Our elders and staff members, they want to pray for you. And of course, as you know, after each service, we give you an opportunity to uh, share a prayer request near the cross to one of our leaders who will pray for you. There's also another way you can share a prayer request. On the back tables, you'll see these connection cards. And on the back of the card, it says here, how can we pray for you this week? If you'd like to write down a prayer request, you can drop it in the offering boxes and we'll make sure that our leaders pray for you throughout the week. So we encourage you to take a moment on your way out to fill out a card and drop it in the offering box. Before we open God's word, uh, we're going to pray. And today, as we pray, I do have a favor to ask. If you're able to, would you stand and join me in prayer? Let's stand, if you're able to, and bow our heads. And let's go before the Lord. Father, we uh, come to you and we pause and we reflect. We reflect and remember the events, the tragic events that occurred on this day 21 years ago, which we know is 9-11. And so, Father, we pause and we bow with humble spirits and we look to you, God, to provide healing, comfort, and eternal hope. Father, we take great confidence in knowing that you are a God who is ever at work, and you work even in the darkest of times. And so we thank you for that. We ask that you would heal hearts, comfort those in need, and bring eternal hope your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we 
continue our series this morning. We look to your word, your constant word, your word that transforms our hearts. And may it transform our hearts today so that we would look more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. In 1988, a book was released entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I remember that book. Now, I know that some of you were not yet born in 1988. I remember that book vividly, and I remember the hype that surrounded that book. For much of 1988, I was 19 years old. I turned 20 in December of 88. So if you do the math, that means I'm older than some of you and younger than some of you. <laughs> so now that we've gotten that out of the way, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. It was a book written by a NASA engineer. So you know he had to be smart, right? I mean, he was literally a rocket scientist who wrote this book. And as an engineer and Bible student, he did all kinds of calculations which led him to predict that the rapture would take place in 1988. In fact, he not only predicted the year, he predicted the month. He said the rapture would take place in September of 1988. But not only the month, he predicted down to a three-day window. He said the rapture would happen in 1988 in the month of September between September 11 and 13. That's 34 years ago to this date that he had predicted that the rapture would happen. He was so confident in his prediction that he was quoted as saying, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. <laughs> and I say that to every preacher in town. That was his quote. And to back up his prediction, he sent 300,000 copies of his book to pastors around the country. And later that year, 4.5 million copies were sold nationwide. And that was before the days of Amazon. 4.5 million copies. You know what that tells me? It tells me that many of these pastors who received his book bought into his prediction. And they encouraged their congregation members to go out and buy this book. When September 13, 1988 came and went, and when the rapture didn't happen, many Christians were disillusioned and they were disappointed. But this author, he was unfazed. He said, you know, my calculations, they were very accurate except they were just about a year off. <laughs> so the following year, he came out with a revised edition <laughs> as to why 
the rapture would happen in 1989. This isn't the only time that we've seen predictions related to the end times. There are too many for me to even mention this morning. Are we closer to the end of the age? Absolutely, we are. With each passing day, we're getting closer and closer to the end of the age. But as we're going to see today, as well as next Sunday, it is far more important to prepare ourselves for the end than it is to try to predict the end. And not only is it not important to try to predict the end, it's not necessary. And not only is it not necessary, it is actually wrong to try to predict the end. And I'll share why that is between now and next Sunday. We are currently in a lengthy series through the Gospel of Mark called Servant King. Did you know that today is sermon number 25 in this series? And we still have more to come. The title of this morning's message is Jesus and the Future, Part 1. Because between today and next Sunday, we're going to dive deeply into the 13th chapter of Mark. And we'll unpack this important chapter. So this is part one. Be sure to come back for part two next Sunday. When it comes to theology, there's a word that you're going to hear throughout the next couple of weeks. It's the word eschatology. You can see it up here on the screen. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos. And eschatos means last. So eschatology is the study of last things. We call that the study of the end times. And before we go any further, I want to stop and say that when it comes to eschatology, not all Christians agree on how the end will unfold. And that's okay. It's absolutely okay. There are godly people who love Jesus, who are committed to obeying God's word, who just don't agree on how the end will occur. And not only that, there are people who love Jesus, who want to obey God's word, who in their own lives, they've actually changed their views about the end times over the course of time. And that is absolutely okay as well. All this to say, for the next two weeks, there are two things that I'd like for us to be mindful of as we study eschatology. Two things. One, this is an in-house discussion. And what I mean by in-house is that followers of Jesus Christ who are committed to obeying God's word can and should continue to fellowship with one another even if we have differences in our understandings of how the end will unfold. This is an in-house discussion. You know, when it comes to the study of eschatology, you're going to start to hear terms like, Second coming, rapture, tribulation, millennium, antichrist, and so on and so on. Today's message and next week's message, these are not necessarily uh, systematic lessons on eschatology. Now, I'm going to say this. 
I love systems. I love order. I love structure. I loved my systematic theology classes in seminary. And the terms that I just mentioned, second coming, rapture, tribulation, millennium, we're going to talk about these words in the next two weeks. But the priority of today and next week is not so much a systematic theology lesson on eschatology, but rather the unpacking of this important chapter. We want to unpack this chapter in light of its context, and as we do so, naturally, the conversation of eschatology will come in. So, know this. First of all, that this is an in-house discussion. Not all Christians agree on how the end will unfold. Secondly, I'd love, I love for us to be mindful of this. For the next two weeks, as we talk about eschatology, a spirit of humility is key. A spirit of humility is key because there are scholars who have devoted their entire lives to the study of eschatology who just don't agree on how the end will unfold. And that's okay. They all love the Lord. They're all going to heaven. None of us has all the answers when it comes to the study of the last things. And none of us, this side of eternity, will ever have all the answers. And so it's best to maintain a spirit of humility when we talk about eschatology. What we don't want to do is this. We don't want to try to uh, stubbornly make Scripture fit our theology, right? So if we study a passage and we discover, wait a minute, my theology and the passage, they don't line up. What we don't want to do is try to twist Scripture to fit our theology. We want to align our theology with God's Word. And that can only happen if we approach Scripture with a spirit of humility. And here's the beauty of that. When we approach God's Word with humility, it then allows us to approach one another with humility. Who knows? When we all get to heaven and we learn all the answers... We might turn to a fellow church member who we disagreed with here on earth, and we might say to that person, oh, I guess you were right after all. But then again, I don't think we'll be too concerned about that, because in heaven, we'll be too busy worshiping God to argue about who is right and who is wrong. So, with all that in mind, I now invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 1. I'll read to you verses 1 through four. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? This dialogue between Jesus and his disciples is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Because this takes place on the Mount 
of Olives. Now, when you hear Olivet Discourse and Mount of Olives, just know that they're talking about the same thing. Olivet or Mount of Olives, it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. So Jesus is talking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Earlier in the day, Jesus had spent hours in the temple dialoguing with the religious leaders. Hours. And afterwards, he took his disciples and walked from Jerusalem toward Bethany. Bethany was just a couple miles outside Jerusalem. And Bethany was a town where Jesus and his disciples went every night to sleep in that final week. So Jesus would minister and dialogue in the temple. And at night, they'd walk to Bethany. And in order to get to Bethany from Jerusalem, they had to traverse the Mount of Olives. So that particular evening, as they're walking toward Bethany, the disciples pause and they look back at the city of Jerusalem and they marvel at the beauty of all the buildings. And I can relate because whenever we travel, I love taking pictures of picturesque skylines. I just love city skylines. And so the disciples, they marvel at the beauty of the city. At that time, the temple was the centerpiece. It was considered one of the most impressive buildings in all the earth. When we look at the temple, at that time, some of the stones measured, get this, 40 by 18 by 12. Not inches. Feet. So if you had a stone 40 inches by 18 inches by 12 inches, that'd be impressive alone. But these stones were 40 feet in length, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high, taller than a basketball hoop. For comparison, today a, an average shipping container is about oh, 30 to 40 feet in length, 8 feet wide, and about 8.5 feet high. What that means is, if you were to hollow out a stone from the temple, you could fit a shipping container inside the stone, not the other way around. The temple building was made of beautiful, pristine, white marble. The entire eastern wall was plated with gold. So picture this. When the sun rose every morning from the east and hit the eastern wall, the golden reflection could be seen throughout the city. The disciples marveled at this temple, which was rebuilt by a man named Herod. Do you remember King Herod? We talked about him a few weeks ago. King Herod was a Jewish king, but he was employed by the Roman government to oversee the Jewish community so that the Roman government could keep the Jewish community at peace. So they hired King Herod. And King Herod, he wanted to make a name for himself. And so he rebuilt Solomon's temple, which was much smaller, not nearly as dazzling. And so King Herod, he just completely remodeled the temple. And his vision was so grand, he had to employ 18,000 workers to complete the temple. 
It was a beautiful building. At that time, it was the center of the city. The disciples marveled at it. Jesus said, yes, those are beautiful buildings, but not one stone will be left on top of another. So Jesus painted a dark picture of the future of the physical temple in Jerusalem. But what's important for us to know is this, that Jesus was talking not only about the physical temple, he was actually foreshadowing something that was to come later. So when he talked about the destruction of the temple, it actually happened. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. But at the same time, Jesus was talking about the future. His own parousia. That's an important word, so I want to uh, show you the word parousia. You'll see it up here on the screen. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Parousia means a coming or arrival. So when we connect parousia and Jesus, we're talking about his second coming. So, looking from our 21st century perspective, back at the Olivet Discourse, we can see that there was a historical aspect to it. Jesus talked about the destruction of the physical temple that happened in 70 AD. But we also look ahead to the end, to the parousia, Jesus' coming. Let's talk about that phrase, the second coming of Jesus. We hear that often, right? Jesus is coming back. And that is a fact. We as followers of Jesus, we know that he is coming back. That is a promise. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again. So that is a promise. He will come again. But this is where it gets a little bit confusing. I mentioned earlier terms like rapture and tribulation, millennium. These are all terms related to the second coming of Jesus. Now, at this point, I'm not going to give you a, an in-depth study on eschatology, but I do want to outline for us all some different understandings of how the events in the future might unfold. I'm going to outline these generally for you. And as I do so, keep in mind, these are all views held by wonderful people who love Jesus who want to obey God's word, and who we would consider part of mainstream Christianity. I'll begin by talking about the terms rapture and the second coming. There are those who believe that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate and distinct events separated by time that Jesus will come for his church, take them to heaven for a period of time, and then later come with his church for his second coming. There are those who believe that this will happen before a period known as the tribulation. The tribulation is defined as a, a seven-year period. Okay? And so 
There are those who love Jesus who say that uh, Christ will rapture his church before the seven-year tribulation period. So if someone holds to that view, they would be known as a pre-tribulational proponent. So a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Some believe that Jesus will come for his church and rapture his church up halfway through the tribulation. Three and a half years into the tribulation. That's the mid-tribulational view. And then there's still those who believe that Jesus will rapture his church somewhere in the second half of the tribulation. Not at the end of the tribulation, not at the beginning, but somewhere toward the end, but just before the most severe portion of God's wrath. And that's called the pre-wrath view of the rapture. You still with me, everybody? Yes? Yes? Good. And so you've got a pre-tribulational view of the rapture before the seven-year period, a mid-tribulational view of the rapture. And then you've got a pre-wrath view where Christ will rapture his church just before the most severe part. They will be spared God's greatest judgment. And then there's a fourth view, which is called the post-tribulational view. And that is that those who believe this say that Christ coming and the rapture are, in essence, the one and same event, that they will occur simultaneously, that Jesus will come, meet his church in the air, and they will descend together to establish his millennial kingdom. So you've got the pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, pre-wrath, and then the post-tribulational view. Four general views. I thought for a moment, hmm, should I have you all sit by sections of where you believe? We got four sections here, all right? Ready, go, okay. We're going to review all this next week. In fact, we're going to expand that discussion next week, so come back for part two. I don't want you to get too bogged down by all the details right now. Because if this sounds all new to you, that's okay. It's confusing. But I share those views simply to set the backdrop for the next few verses. Again, because we don't study the Bible for eschatology, right? We study God's Word to see His will, and along the way, we see eschatological conversations. And so I share these views to set the backdrop for the next few verses. And keep in mind, scholars have been debating this for years, and they don't agree. And what makes this even more challenging is many Old Testament and New Testament passages are used to support all four of these views. So it's complicated. So don't get too bogged down right now in all the details. Here's the fact. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. That much we can all agree upon. And so, by this time, in the Olivet Discourse, remember, let's go back to that scene now. Jesus and his disciples, they're in conversation. And by this time, the disciples, they are so gripped by what Jesus is saying. So they ask him two questions. And we saw those two questions in verse 4. They said, when will all this happen? What sign will show us? that these things are about to be fulfilled. 
Well, let's continue on now in verse 5. I'll read verses 5 through 8. Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. The disciples asked Jesus, what would be the sign indicating that all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus will address that question later in the passage, and we'll talk about that next Sunday. But what's interesting is this. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells them the sure signs that the end is not near. All right? So Jesus is going to tell his disciples the signs that will indicate that the end is not near. And yet, this is where so many Christians get it wrong. As well-intentioned as they may be, Christians often get it wrong. And they interpret things as signs of the end times when Jesus himself said, these are not the signs. They do just the opposite of what Jesus said. Every time there's a major earthquake or a war or a famine or an epidemic, perhaps a pandemic, people start to wonder, is this the end? Is this the end? Is Jesus coming? The answer is no. It is not the end. These are not signs that those things will be fulfilled. Jesus said these things must take place, but the end will not happen immediately. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. And yet so many people get it wrong. And they've gotten it wrong for so many years. You see, that's why we as pastors, we need to be so careful. We who teach God's word, we need to be careful whenever there is a major crisis. If we're not careful, we can take passages out of their context, preach them to churches, and then have congregation members spread false information. And this has happened throughout history. Did you know that when World War I started, Christians wondered, is this the beginning of the end? Panic ensued. That same misguided confusion occurred at the start of World War II. This must be the end. Jesus must be coming back now. It happened again at the start of the Cold War. This is surely the end. 
Wars are not signs that the end is at hand. Nation will go to war against nation. That is what Jesus said. Earthquakes are not signs that the end is at hand. The 6.7 magnitude Northridge earthquake in 1994 took the lives of 70, I'm sorry, 57, injured over 9,000, damaged over 82,000 buildings, and cost $20 billion. I remember that quake vividly. I remember being woken up by the shaking earth on that Monday morning, January 17, just after 4.30 a.m. in 1994. When that quake shook Southern California, many people and many Christians wondered, is this the end? Surely this is the end. Jesus is coming now. And sadly, I remember this too. Many Christians at that time said this is God's judgment on the San Fernando Valley. I heard so many sermons, so many radio broadcasts. This is surely God's judgment on the San Fernando Valley because certain industries are located in the San Fernando Valley. Throughout history, there have been earthquakes across the globe, many much more severe than the Northridge quake. And as devastating as these earthquakes are, they are not signs that the end is at hand. Again, Jesus himself said these things will happen, but the end will not come immediately. Pastors preach these as signs. Congregation members spread this false information. And speaking of false information, we only have to go back to March of 2020 to the start of the pandemic to see yet another example of Christians as well-intentioned as they may be wrongly interpreting Scripture and saying this is the end. This is God's judgment. This is the end. Earthquakes, epidemics, natural disasters, they have occurred throughout history. But Jesus says these are merely birth pains. And the understanding of birth pains, when Jesus talks about birth pains, and when Paul in Romans talks about birth pains, the idea is this. The birth pains come really early, and they last for a long, long time. That's why Paul said in his letter to the Romans that the sufferings of creation have been happening since the beginning. So these things happen because we live in a fallen world that is susceptible to disease and illness and natural disasters. So Jesus says, don't be misled. These things will happen. These are not signs that the end is at hand. And sadly, not only have people misled people with false information, about earthquakes and pandemics and wars. But even more tragically, over the years, false messiahs have misled people to their own deaths. 
in the first century and throughout history, many have come claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus knew that that would happen. He said, don't be misled by them. They will claim to be the Messiah. And we can point to many tragedies in our own history. Some of you may remember Heaven's Gate. I know some of you may not have been born, but in 1997, 39 members were found dead in a mass suicide inside a home in suburban San Diego, just an hour and a half south of us. How about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? In 1993, 55 adults and, and tragically 28 children were found dead after authorities raided the Waco, Texas compound. And of course, Jonestown Massacre. 1978, over 900 people lost their lives in a mass suicide murder. Many will claim to be the Messiah. Many will be deceived. It's so tragic. And Jesus warned his disciples. And then, in that same Olivet Discourse, he went on to encourage them to remain steadfast in their faith in the midst of suffering. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. I'll read through verse 13. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Followers of Jesus both in the first century and the 21st century, will face persecution. That's a guarantee. The New American Standard Bible translates verse 13 this way. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. That's an important phrase, my name. In the Old Testament, God's name held great significance. His name represented his very essence. You know, expectant parents, they spend weeks and months trying to figure out, what should we name our child? They go back and forth because they want to find the perfect name. You know why? Because in many ways, a name defines a child. And it certainly did in the Old Testament. In sports, team names are powerful. 
You wear your favorite team jersey into the right crowd, and you can make friends out of strangers, right? Your team scores. You give perfect strangers high fives. You give them hugs and fist bumps and chest bumps, and you're just your instant friends. Team names are powerful. On our re- recent trip to Hawaii, we were you know, on the island of Kauai, and uh, every morning I would get up early to do my uh, daily morning run. And uh, it was wonderful because I got to run along the beach. I saw turtles and sunrises. And what was really fascinating was every morning on my runs, I would see many couples doing their early morning strolls together. It was really a neat sight. And so there I was one day, I'm running along the path, and from the other direction, a couple is walking toward me. So I'm running, I've got my AirPods in, I see the couple. As they get closer to me, I notice the man, the husband, is wearing a college shirt. And as they get even closer, I read the words, Cal Poly Mustangs. And so I pull my AirPods out. I give them a big smile. I said, my daughter goes to Cal Poly. And they smiled back, and we became best friends. (laughs) I mean, think about that. The odds of strangers who have kids that go to a small school in central California run across each other on the small island of Kauai. Instant bonding. The right name, the right time, on your shirt, it connects people. But if you wear the wrong jersey into the wrong crowd, you might get booed. You might get things thrown at you. You might get dirty looks. And sadly, as we've seen on the news, you might get harmed. What's in a name? Everything. Everything is in a name. When we claim the name of Jesus, we put ourselves out there. In many parts of the world today, people are paying the price physically because they claim the name of Jesus. And Paul reminded the Philippian believers that they have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Christ. When we hear about the sufferings of Christians around the world, it saddens us deeply. But the one thing it should never do is surprise us. Because Jesus said that we would suffer. Throughout this series, we've been reminding you of a couple questions that were asked. In Act 1, the crowds marveled at the miracles of Jesus. And they asked the question, who is this Jesus? They were amazed. In Act 2, a different group asked a different question. Who is this group? The disciples. And what was their question? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? You see, because the answer to that question had implications for their own future. And the answer to that question has implications for us as Christ followers. We've been given the privilege of not only trusting in Christ, but church, if you trust in Christ, 
you will also suffer for Christ. And that's a privilege. And the reality is, probably compared to many parts of the world, our suffering, we may not know the kinds of suffering that some experience worldwide. But did you know that when our brothers and sisters across the globe, when they suffer for their faith and they stand before their governments, their governments may hear about Jesus for the first time ever. And so it's a privilege not only to trust in Christ, but to suffer for him. One commentator says this, the gospel is worth our life. To see someone come into eternal life is worth me losing my earthly life. At the beginning of our time, I talked about the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That was written toward the end of the decade known as the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s, the best decade in all of history, <laughs> the best music in all of history. Earlier that decade, again, this is before many of you were born. Earlier in that decade, a well-known pastor, a pastor who I greatly admired, he made a mistake. He made a prediction. He made a bold prediction. He wrote a book 1980, or late 70s. And in the book, he boldly predicted that the rapture would take place before the end of 1981. This pastor, who would then go on to uh, be the leader of a worldwide movement of churches, boldly predicted that the rapture would take place before the end of the calendar year 1981. He gathered his congregation for a New Year's Eve service, January, I'm sorry, December 31st, 1981, before the next year. They gathered together in the church sanctuary, but his congregation members, they didn't expect to go home, back to their homes that night. They went to the New Year's Eve service to be raptured. And when the clock struck midnight and 1982 came and the rapture didn't happen, they all went back to their homes. And many of them were disillusioned after that. I share that because it is dangerous for us to even try to predict when Jesus is coming back. I'm going to close part one by reading verse 32. And then we'll come back next week to continue with part two. Let's go to Mark 13, verse 32. 
Jesus says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Church, the fact remains, Jesus is coming back. Amen? Jesus is coming back. But that is not for us to predict when. It is wrong for us to even try to guesstimate when he's coming back. Why? Because Jesus said not even himself knows the day or hour. Only the Father. And we're going to look closely at that statement next Sunday. Jesus did not know the day or the hour. I want to close our time by saying this. One commentator predicts, kind of funny, huh? But one commentator predicts that predictions will get much worse in the coming years. (laughs) That prediction I can agree with. Predictions about the end times will become much worse in the coming years. It is not for us to know the day or the hour. The best way that you and I, church, can prepare for Christ's coming is to fulfill our mission as a church, to know Jesus and make him known. What does that mean? Come to church, go to your groups, study the word together, grow together, fellowship in community together, know Jesus, and then go out and make him known to as many people as we can. That is the absolute best way to prepare for his coming. See you here next week for part two. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your counsel. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your example. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. And sometimes uh, we get sidetracked by life. But I trust that every one of us here, we want to know you. And as we get to know you more, I know that we can't help but want to make you known. We know you're coming back. We don't know when. But we know that you've given us a mission to know you to make you known. Help that to be our mission this week and every week until you come. We pray in your name. Amen.